Well, this morning, um, we are, this is the text we were going to look at uh, two Sundays ago when I had to bail out uh, on that uh, on that morning. Um, and then, as we said, Justin was scheduled to come uh, as part of his internship. Uh, he's interning at Westminster Presbyterian, and so he needs to meet a certain number of, uh, of pulpit, filling the pulpit and leading services at Westminster, but also here at Affirmation. So uh, thankful to Justin for uh, being faithful uh, to preach God's word uh, last week as he came here. But what we're doing, uh, and Justin um, participated in this as well, is considering uh, the implications of the resurrection. We at, at Chapel Field, we've been uh, we, we've been taking up a theme every month as we uh, guide a lot of our readings in the morning assemblies and in our chapels around. We've been taking up a theme for a month and. This month, the theme is new creation and resurrection because we're coming, we came off a of spring break in April. And I'm trying to train the kids or at least teach them or instruct them over the fact that historically within the church, the resurrection has not been something that was only celebrated for a day, you know, Easter Sunday, uh, but that it is something that is celebrated over a couple months, actually. It's, 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 it's stretched out. It's a, it's, it calls the church, uh, um, readings and calendar have called the church to sit on the resurrection, to linger, to dwell, to meditate, to reflect. And boy, this is even more important for us as a people who are so quick to move off things. We have, we have, the, you know, the attention spans of bunnies, you know, we're just like, ping, ping, ping. you know, we, we just don't reflect deeply on things. I wonder if you felt that. I'm not saying this to condemn you. I'm just wondering if you felt it even in the reading of Romans today. Were you able to hold your attention through a challenging argument? I mean, the book of Romans is difficult. It's wonderful. It's like the, it, it's it, in some ways, it's the pinnacle of theological uh, writings and tones, but it requires diligence. It requires attentiveness. And we're not prone to that especially in this day and age where we just have so much distraction and the attention spans have shrunk. And so even on a subject like the resurrection, very easy to focus on it for that Sunday of Easter. And then, okay, we move off of it. But I think there's wisdom in the church calendar. In this sense, and that's why we participate in it because it's good to sit and to reflect upon that act, which is the climactic act of all of history. It was in the fullness of time that God sent forth his son. That is to say, this was the time that it was all rushing toward. All of history is moving to this point, to the work of our Savior. Yes, his birth, but his birth was to bring him to Golgotha and Golgotha to the empty grave. This is what the story is about. And so to move off and say, okay, what can we get on to practical things? It's like, this. there's nothing more practical. There's nothing worth meditating on more than the death and resurrection of our Lord and the implications for us. Well, in the text this morning, we come to a word that Paul loves to use. In fact, one of the hard things about preaching through Romans is that it's almost a run-on sentence. It's a run-on sentence with punctuation. Let's put it that way. I think Paul just gratuitously throws some periods in there just so that it is not a 16 chapter sentence. Because if you read Romans, it is almost one continuous thought. 
And so when you read, you will hear and just have eyes to see it now. And you'll be amazed at how many times Paul uses the word for or therefore. And what he's doing is he's just building thought upon thought, upon thought, upon thought. And therefore, when you jump into Romans, it is almost impossible to jump in anywhere in the book because you're jumping into a therefore, which means you got to go back a passage. The problem is when you go back, the passage right before it says, therefore, and the passage right before that says, for, and the passage right before that says, so we know, you know, and you're just like, wait, <laughs> you go back and back. And Paul is, Paul is rolling in Romans. He's just, it's such a deep and wonderful theological treatise. And I encourage you to read it and to think deeply and to slow down because Romans does require small bites. Even what we're doing today, Roman, you you look at like Martin Lloyd-Jones, you know, Martin Lloyd-Jones like took 10 years to preach through Romans because he realized in order to do it faithfully, I almost have to go phrase by phrase. And so if you were in Martin Lloyd-Jones' church, you know, you were going to be there, you were going to hunker down in Romans for a long time. It does require small bites. And even what we're doing here, Romans 8, 1 through 4, could be viewed as a a pretty big chunk. Um, So I encourage you to read Romans and to read slowly. But I want us to think about this. I've entitled the sermon, No Condemnation, because that's the phrase that jumps out. But I almost think that this and this series, we're going to spend the next several weeks in Romans 8, could be considered the therefore of the resurrection. You remember on Easter Sunday, we thought about this in 1 Corinthians 15. Therefore. He says at the end of this magnificent chapter on the resurrection, at the very end, he comes to the last several verses and he says, therefore, that is, the resurrection means something for us. There's a takeaway. It's not just a historical act that's out there. There's implications, right? And so in 1 Corinthians 15, therefore, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the working, in the work of the Lord, knowing that your labor is not in vain, right? Therefore, here's the implications. And in a certain sense, we have a very similar situation here. This is the therefore of the work of our Savior, the work of his death and resurrection. Let me go ahead and read Romans 8, 1 through 4, and then we'll take it up, not so much in points, but in the logic of the argument. That's how we'll work through this uh, text today. This is on page 1004. There is therefore, in light of everything else he's written, but in our immediate context, in light of the death and resurrection of our Savior, there is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus, who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. For the law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus has made me free from the law of sin and death. For What the law could not do in that it was weak through the flesh, God did by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh on account of sin. He condemned sin in the flesh that the righteous requirements of the law might be fulfilled in us who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. You notice the fours and that's the connective words that Paul does just within these four verses. He's he's connecting his thoughts so uh, intimately. There is therefore now no condemnation. I've said before, almost any time we come to Romans chapter 8, I mention the fact that uh, if if you could only take one chapter or Sproul, R.C. Sproul did this in in class. I remember him saying that 
if you were on a deserted island and you could only have one book of the Bible, what would it be? And if you could only have one chapter of the Bible, what would it be? And he said, if you can only have one chapter of the Bible, it would be Romans 8. Romans 8 is such a magnificent chapter of the Bible. And I encourage you over the next couple of weeks, maybe to read it through, read it through, because the, the argument, you need to hear all of our words in the context of the full argument. And of Romans 8, it just begins with this climactic verse, so wonderful and powerful. There is therefore now, it's a strong statement. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Now, Paul has just been talking about, again, you got to go back in the argument. And in chapter six, he's talking about the fact that we were once slaves to sin. Sin ruled us. It held us captive. And then in Romans 7, Paul elaborates on the, the struggle of Israel, but also his own personal struggle of wrestling with sin and finding himself doing the things he doesn't want to do and not doing the things he does want to do and feeling the guilt of that. And here in chapter 8, he explodes with this, therefore, of the death and resurrection of our Lord. There is now, uh, there is therefore now no condemnation. In some sense, if we took the whole Bible and the gospel and condensed it down to a phrase, if we could find a phrase that just put the gospel on display, a phrase, it would be this. This is the good news of the gospel, that we who are in Christ have no condemnation. And yet we sat in here this morning confessing our sins. This is the beautiful tension, the beautiful irony of the Christian faith. Uh, Luther put it this way in Latin, simul justus epicator, that is, at the same time, I, I give the Latin so that I sound, you know, you think, wow, he's really smart. No, I, I say it only because I was forced to memor memorize it. But simul justus epicator, at the same time, simul, simul, like simultaneously, at the same time, just and sinner. This is what changed Luther's whole life. He was also burdened with the weight and guilt of his own sin. He, like the Apostle Paul, was a man who saw his sin clearly. Or like David, his sin was always before him. Luther knew he was a sinner. He also knew, like Lady Macbeth, there was no way to get this damn spot out. Out, out, damn spot. I can't clean this. I can't clean myself. Luther knew that. Luther knew there was no way to remove the stain of his sin. My sin is always before me, and I see no relief. And in reading Romans, Romans chapter 1, right? It didn't take him long in his study of Romans. This burden fell off his back, and Luther said it was as if I'd entered into the very gates of paradise itself. When he realized the truth of the gospel... The gospel is not about you cleaning up your act. The gospel is good news for sinners. And that when we are united to the Lord Jesus Christ, we are simul justus et peccator. We are at the same time just and sinner. Martin Luther is a sinner, but because he is in Christ, he has the righteousness of Christ. 
the blood of Christ availing to him, the forgiveness that comes in Christ, the right standing that Christ has achieved, the privileges that Christ has given him, namely access before the throne of God. And that's why Luther says it was his, as if I had entered into the very gates of paradise itself, because he had. This is the beautiful tension and paradox, if you will, of the Christian faith. We are at the same time sinners who can come in here and confess our sins, and yet we are righteous. And I get the privilege to declare to you week after week in the assurance of pardon that there is for you now no condemnation. What wonderful news. Such important news for you to lay hold of because remember, Satan, the name Satan, the term Satan means accuser. And one of the great enemies that we face in our Christian lives is that of accusation, of condemnation, the constant dredging up of our failings the pointing out of our failings, the touching of those nerves in our conscience. You have blown it in your lives. I know that about you, and I don't know all the details. I don't need to know them. I just know it because I know you're a sinner. I know you've blown it. And Satan loves to come and poke that wound. Satan loves to dredge up the memories, the guilt. Of our sin. How important then is it for us as Christians to have this phrase, this statement, this declaration of the Apostle Paul, this therefore of the resurrection of Jesus Christ ringing in our ears and always before us? It is this and by this that you resist Satan and he will flee. This is how you actually do it. When it comes to accusation, you declare what the scriptures have declared of you. There is therefore now no condemnation. This is the sword of the spirit that you wield. Satan and all of his accusations, which prior to the, the cross were indeed accurate. You are a sinner. He has now been silenced. Remember that beautiful passage in Zechariah 3. The Lord stands and kicks Satan out of the courtroom. Not because the initial accusation against Joshua the high priest was inaccurate. Don't forget, Joshua was standing with filthy garments. He was a lawbreaker. Satan's accusation was not inaccurate. The reason Satan is cast out of the courtroom is because the Lord stands in his defense and undoes what Joshua has done. He removes the filthy garments. He gives him new white robes. And therefore, he can justly say, there is no condemnation, Joshua, for you. And this is the declaration that he gives also to you. And it is yours now. There is therefore now no condemnation. If you take anything away for encouragement this morning, then may it be that. May these words stay ringing in your ears today. And may your soul chew on them and, and, and delight in them. Meditate upon them throughout the rest of the day, the week, and more willing for the rest of our lives. Now, there is, this is where Paul now starts to build the argument, and there are some conditions here. There are some modifiers here. There is therefore now no condemnation to those or for those. Okay, what group? Who is it then that receives this good news 
of this great declaration of no condemnation. There is no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. Now, I know you knew that already. I'm not revealing anything to you, but it's important to reflect upon again this morning that this is not just a universalistic blanket. Hey, good news out there. There's no condemnation. No, there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. It is only in Christ that we are simul justus et peccator. It's only in Christ that this sinner can be declared just. Other than that, I'm just a sinner. This is a, a, a crucial condition to this declaration. The good news of the gospel is for those who are in Christ, for he is the way, the truth, and the life, and there is no way to the Father but by him. There is no way to remove that spot and to find that cleansing except in him. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. Ephesians 1.3. All the spiritual blessings of the heavenly places, this declaration included, access to God, all of these things are ours in Christ. And therefore, union with Christ by the gift of the Spirit, by the gift of faith, is essential to our receiving this amazing and wonderful declaration. Now, we might ask, well, how do I know I'm in Christ? Okay, if, if, the, if the promise, if this great declaration is given to those who are in Christ, well, then how do I know I'm in Christ? Well, Paul, the logician, goes on to tell us, there is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. Now, the no condemnation, the declaration of no condemnation, is not the result of our walking in the spirit and not in the flesh. This is the, here, here again, it'll sound like we're really getting down in the weeds and parsing our words. But when you're dealing with something this dense, you have to do that. This good news of declar this declaration of no condemnation is freely given to those who are united to Christ. But how do I know I'm united to Christ? What is the fruit? What is the evidence? What are the symptoms? And we had to go get tested for COVID because we started to exhibit symptoms, right? Started to, you know, get achy, started to run a fever, said, uh-oh, better go get tested. It, the fever did not cause the COVID, right? The COVID caused the fever. The fever was the evidence. It was the outward sign that told me, uh -oh, there may be this virus I can't see in my body. I better go get tested and see if it's there. The symptoms were evidential. And Paul is making this same argument in a positive way regarding our faith. How, how do we know that we are in Christ? How do I know that I am united to him? Well, I walk according to the spirit and not according to the flesh. It's not my walking and my doing that put me in Christ. That would be a mistake. That would be a works righteousness. That would be the kind of thing that Paul was challenging the Galatians with. Why, why, why do you think this? Why do you think that you can somehow have all the privileges of God because of your obedience, like going and getting circumcised or any of these kinds of things and fill in for circumcision any kind of obedience you want? 
It's not the obedience that unites you to Christ. It's the uniting to Christ that gives the obedience. The obedience is the symptom. The obedience is the fruit, to put it more positively. The obedience, the walking in the spirit, is the evidence that we are in Christ. And this is, a, this is a challenge for us. This is really the point that Paul makes himself, but also that James made. In James chapter 2, you say you have faith, but you have no works. I will show you my faith by my works. Faith without works is dead. Profession of faith, profession of being in Christ. Anybody can say they're in Christ. Anybody can say, oh, I have faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, and therefore I have no condemnation. And Paul would say, yes, if you are in Christ, that is true. But the evidence of your being in Christ will be a living. It will be a way of walking in the spirit and not according to the flesh. Now, what does it mean to walk in the spirit and not according to the flesh? Well, we're going to deal with that in some sense next week. But let's we can just jump ahead at least a little bit. To verse 5, the very verse we'll begin with next week. For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on things of the flesh. But those who live according to the Spirit, the things of the Spirit. Okay, that's helpful. So that's the indicator. If I am in Christ, then what a wonderful, blessed declaration is given to me. There is therefore now no condemnation. Well, how do I know I'm in Christ? How do I know I'm united to him? Because How do I know that I'm a branch united to the vine? Because the life of the vine is flowing through me and there will be fruit on the end of my branch. And one of those fruits is my mind will not be dominated by things of the flesh, by how to gratify the desires of my flesh. And flesh here doesn't just mean body. Because the body is good. Flesh here means that sinful nature my sinful desires, my sinful inclinations, the lust of the flesh, the pride of life, as we read in 1 John chapter 2. Are our minds there? Is that what consumes us? How to gratify the desires of the flesh? Or is our mind on the things of the spirit? Do we delight when we read Romans? Do we delight in it? Even if it is beyond our understanding, do we really, do, do, do we, there's a tingling of the mind, and we think, man, there's there's more here. I want to dive in. I want to know. This is like food. You've, you've, you've placed a, a banquet before me, Paul. Where do I start? Not do we have perfection, but does our mind go there? Is, there? is our mind driven by the things of the Spirit? Or down in verse 13, he gives it to us again. Therefore, brethren... We are debtors not to the flesh to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. So what is the what is living in the spirit or walking in the spirit means? It means walking in the spirit means I seek to put to death the deeds of the flesh. Those things that we read about in Galatians chapter 5 in our, in our word of exhortation this morning. The sinful inclinations of my heart. Like I'm, I desire to, as John Owen said, mortify the flesh. To kill it and its passions. That the life of the spirit. I want to pull the weeds in my heart. That the spirit might grow and bear fruit in my life. 
Well, to us who are in Christ, this great, great declaration is given to us. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ. And those who are in Christ walk not according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. Now, here's why the logic of the text continues. Here's why this is true. Why do those who are in Christ walk not according to the flesh, but according to the spirit? Verse uh, 2. For the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has made me free from the law of sin and death. This is why. Because when we've been united to Christ, a legal declaration has been made about me. You are righteous. Bill Spanger, you are righteous. Simul Eustace at But also a gift has been given to me, his spirit. And that spirit goes to work in my heart. And it breaks a bondage in me. Right? Go back to Romans 6 for Paul's elaboration on this. We once were slaves to sin, but we are no longer slaves to sin. You know why? Because we're united to Christ. And Christ's death broke the bondage to sin. Sin no longer reigns over me. The law of sin and death is no longer my master. It's no longer the authority over me if I am in Christ. Because that's what Christ did on his cross. And through his resurrection is he broke the reigning power of sin. And therefore, if we are in Christ and have the gift of the Spirit, then sin does not dominate us. Yes, we all know it's still there, but it doesn't dominate us. We can resist the devil and he will flee. We can resist temptation. We can set our minds on things above. We can set our mind on the things of the Spirit because the law of the Spirit has set me free from sin and death. A new heart has been given to me. Jeremiah 31 talks about the time will come when I make a new covenant with my people. And you know what that new covenant will be? I will put my law upon their hearts. I'm going to change their hearts. Ezekiel says, I'm going to, the Lord says through Ezekiel, I'm going to take away their heart of stone and I'm going to give them a heart of flesh. This is what happens when we're united to Christ. His righteousness is applied to me. I am justified before God. But I'm also given a new heart. I become a new man. I start walking in a new direction. Sure, I'm not perfected. I walk with a limp. My, my, my heart is still distracted. I mean, Paul said the chapter before this, the things I want to do, I end up not doing. The things I don't want to do, I end up doing. That Okay, we know that. We know that. But we also do what David did. We come and we confess. Because I have the mind of the Spirit. And the mind of the Spirit hates sin. And when we sin, it's... Argh. We have that Romans 7 experience. I often tell people, my own students, when we're wrestling through things, hey, if we're struggling with sin, that's a sign of life. Right? If we're wrestling with our sin, if our sin bothers us, we hate the fact that we did that again, that's a good sign. Don't get distracted by the fact that we did it again. Get, get, take comfort in the fact that the Spirit is convicting you. Now, let's get to work on it. Let's not take the liberty, uh, Galatians 5, for granted and say, well, if that's true, there's no condemnation. I can live any way I want. That, that would be a misapplication. It would be a bad sign. No, a new heart has been given to us. A heart that is sensitive to sin. Not a heart of stone, but a heart of flesh. It's sensitive. Not flesh in this way, but a living, beating heart is given to us. And why is this the case? Why is it the case that we've received a new heart? Again, Paul's logic is just so tight here. The passage is so densely packed. For 
the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has made me free from the law of sin and death. For, this is why that happened, for what the law could not do in that it was weak through the flesh, God did by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh. On the count of sin, he condemned sin in the flesh that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. Why do you have a new heart? Because your old heart wasn't going to get it done. And the law, circumcision, all that language of circumcision that we had, right? Law keeping was never going to get it done. The law was powerless to bring us salvation. The law was powerless because our hearts were rotten. Our hearts were the hearts of this flesh, the, a, a, a mind and a heart that was bent against God. And the law is just merely commandments. What can the law do? The law has no power. The, the law just declares. The law is like railroad tracks. Railroad tracks have no influence on the direction of the train. The, the tracks are just there. The train may go this way. The train may go that way. The train may go toward obedience. The train may go toward disobedience. It really depends on the, the engineer, right? The one driving the train. And the engineer of our hearts is bent toward disobedience. Apart from Christ, the rails of God's law only carry us to disobedience. The rails of God's law only expose our sin. They have no power to save us. That's why Paul's telling the Galatians, don't rely upon the law, rely upon Christ. The law is powerless. Just back uh, in, in Romans chapter 7, in verse 5, he says, For when we were in the flesh, the sinful passions were aroused by the law and were at work in our members to bear the fruit of death. <laughs> All the law did for us before Jesus was inflame our passions. It just gave us more stuff to disobey. Or down in verse 8 of chapter 7. But sin, taking opportunity by the commandment. So the commandments just provide opportunity for disobedience for a wicked heart. right? The rails just provide opportunity for movement for the train. But if the train is heading toward hell, it just takes it there. It just provides opportunity for a simple heart to speed on. But sin, taking opportunity by the commandment, produced in me all manner of evil desire. For apart from the law, sin was dead. I was alive once without the law. But when the commandment came, sin revived and I died. That is, once the rails came, the train of my heart, which was bent toward wickedness, just took off on its way to hell. And the commandment, which was to bring life, I found to bring death for sin, taking occasion by the commandment, deceived me and it killed me. Therefore, the law is holy and the commandment holy and just and good. The commandment's not the problem. That's not a problem with the rails. The problem was my heart. The problem was the direction of my train. It was bent away from God. It was on its way to hell. And so all the law did was carry me there because it just gave me more things to disobey. No, the law was powerless. But what did God do within that the law was powerless? Is again, verse 3 of chapter 8. For what the law could not do in that it was weak through the flesh. That is, there's nothing it could do to change the direction of the train. It's just rails. For what the law could not do in that it was weak through the flesh, God did. 
God did what the law could not do. God did what you could not do for you. God did by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh. On account of sin, he condemned sin in the flesh. That is, Jesus Christ came in your flesh, in the likeness of your sinful flesh. That is, he came bearing all the infirmities of this cursed age, though he himself was without sin. But he came bearing all the afflictions of sin and death, sickness and disease and brokenness and death. Bearing it all, he came in the likeness of sinful flesh. And in that flesh, he condemned sin in the flesh. That is, he took our guilt upon himself and dealt with it once and for all. Why? Verse 4, so that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled. The law demands hell. The law demands death. The law demands the full wrath of God. And Jesus fulfilled it for us. The law demands obedience. The law demands that the train go that way on the rails. And we're heading for hell that way. And Jesus came and he took the hell that that way deserved. And then he went that way and gave us the reward that he achieved. That double motion or that double transfer of the gospel by which he takes all of our guilt, all of our condemnation upon himself and gives us all of his righteousness as Mark uh, prayed in his prayer that those wonderful words from 2 Corinthians 5, that he who knew no sin, his train was only going that way. He who knew no sin became sin for us. That we through him, the ones who are destined for hell, that we through him might become the righteousness of God. That beautiful double transfer of the gospel is the truth that Paul is declaring here. And God has done it for us. You know, Romans 8, in a very real sense, is a whole chapter on assurance. It's Romans 8, the beauty of Romans 8 is that it is given to us to give us confidence and assurance. Because you know how this chapter ends. What can separate us from the love of God? Can this, can this, can that? No, I tell you, we are more than kind. Right? That kind, that's where this text is going. It's a text on assurance. And what this text is telling you is, brothers and sisters, do not rely upon yourselves. Do not walk according to the flesh. Rely upon the Lord Jesus Christ, for it is in him alone that the declaration is given. There is therefore now no condemnation. And hence, walk in the spirit. Set your minds only on him. For God has done for you what you could not do for yourself, and he has freely given it to you in the work of his son. This text, I encourage you, I won't dwell on it. We'll go back in Sunday school if you'd like, but I encourage you to look at it again and see how Trinitarian it is. God, his son, the spirit, our assurance, our confidence that we have no condemnation is ultimately a confidence rooted in the Trinitarian love of God for you. All the weight of the Trinity is brought to bear for you and your salvation, doing for you what you could not do for yourself, that in him, by the power of his spirit, the Father may declare of you, there is no condemnation for you who are in Christ. May we find comfort in that this morning. May we rejoice in that this morning. May we delight in the therefore of the resurrection because Christ has died, because Christ is raised, 
the Father may now declare of you, there is therefore now no condemnation. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, how we thank you for the gift of salvation that we have in Christ. We confess with the Apostle Paul that we were a train bound for hell. Right on the rails of your law, just give us more to disobey, more to reject you with. But Father, we thank you for our Lord Jesus Christ who has come and borne the full weight of the judgment that we deserve. That we through him might be the very righteousness of God. That we through him might have the righteous requirement of the law met in us. That we through him might hear that wonderful and blessed declaration. There is therefore now no condemnation. Oh, Father, we pray that you would enliven our hearts this morning with the good news of that, that Satan must flee. His accusations fall upon deaf ears now. And Father, would you, by your spirit, drive us unto greater obedience. Guard us from walking in the way of the flesh. Instead, make us walk in the light of your spirit, setting our minds on him and on Christ. For we ask this in his name. Amen.